Okay. Welcome to Civil Discourses. I am your guest host today, Forrest Neighbors. I am professor of political science at the University of Alaska Anchorage. And I am joined by uh, Professor Klaus Laris. Professor Laris is the Richard M. Krasno Distinguished Professor of History and International Affairs at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Last year, he was counselor and senior policy advisor at the German Embassy in Beijing. And he is the author of Churchill's Cold War, The Politics of Personal Diplomacy. He is also a fellow of the Institute for Advanced Study at Princeton University and previously held the Henry A. Kissinger Chair in Foreign Policy and International Relations at the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C. Dr. Laris, welcome to Civil Discourses. Thank you very much. I'm very pleased to be here. It's uh, now, uh, Professor, we are uh, up here in the Great White North of Alaska, and Civil Discourses especially welcomes guests who have contrary views to debate. And unfortunately, I, I'm afraid I, having heard you lecture and having spoken with you, I, I may unfortunately agree with many of your, too many of your positions, but we're going to try to mix it up today as best we can in the spirit of any, civil Any discourse. sensible person will, of course, agree with me. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, <clears throat> Now, you gave a, a lecture last evening about Churchill during the Cold War, and I was hoping we could speak about that. It seemed to me that you wanted to bring out Churchill's emphasis on making peace, on engagement, and negotiation with our primary competitor at that time, which was the Soviet Union, of course. And you especially brought out his uh, his attempts to bring about a conference among the great powers to adjust our differences with them and uh, prevent nuclear war most especially. But this view of Churchill, it struck me, is very much at odds with our view of Churchill as a hawk. This is correct. Uh, the general picture is uh, of Churchill as a war prime minister who won the Cold War for Great Britain, of course, in cooperation with the United States and the Soviet Union, but he's very much seen as a war prime minister, as a uh, warrior, and then also as a cold warrior after the Second World War. And this picture is not totally wrong, but it is not complete, I believe. When you look even at the Second World War, he was always interested in negotiating with Roosevelt, with Stalin, with uh, other powers during the Second World War. He knew that without allies, you cannot win such a battle against Hitler, which he had to fight. And that continued after the Second World War. He believed that peace was endangered. There was nuclear war just around uh, the corner, he believed, with the development of nuclear weapons, the explosions over Hiroshima and Nagasaki, which shook him uh, deeply. And he believed something had to be done in the cold, in the post Cold War. Uh, sorry, in the post war period during the Cold War, that um, peace would uh, be maintained and stability to the world would come back. And he believed that way uh, to do it. The way to do it was to negotiate again, to talk to your foes, but also, of course, to your friends. And that was the reason why he suggested a summit conference with uh, the United States and the Soviet Union. 
and this in particular he suggested after Stalin's death in March 1953. Before Stalin died suddenly in March 53, he already uh, had that idea and proposed that idea of a summit conference to President Truman, you know, to talk to Stalin, who was still alive at that stage, but Truman did um, rejected him. He didn't think that was a good idea because of uh, Stalin's ruthless activities in Eastern Europe. And so Churchill had to basically give up on his idea for the time being. And suddenly Stalin died with new men in the Kremlin who seemed to be more flexible, who seemed to be more open-minded about better relations with the West. And he jumped at that opportunity and suggested to President Eisenhower to come with him to a summit with the Soviet Union. What essentially he had in mind was to open the Potsdam conference again and complete it better mm -hmm. and more properly than had been done in 1945. Mm -hmm. What do you think really changed Churchill's approach to uh, from being this hawk before World War II to becoming more of a dove, if you permit me to use that term afterwards? It, it seems to me that um, based on what you've said here and last night, that it may have been the change in armament and that it was nuclear weapons. I, I also speculate after listening to you that maybe uh, he softened in his as as he became older and was seeing his own and natural end approaching that maybe he he wanted to leave a legacy as a peacemaker. What what do you think was the what really changed him or or maybe it was his assessment of his adversary that Hitler was simply different from Stalin. And, and Khrushchev. He certainly wanted to go down in world history, not just as a wartime prime minister, but also as a peacemaker, as someone who won and overcame the Cold War, terminated the Cold War. Certainly, he wanted to have that legacy as well. But I would argue that we have simply overlooked that side of his personality. There wasn't a sudden change. That behavior, that kind of thinking was always there. I mentioned the wartime conferences during the Second World War, which are famous, where he cooperated with allies all the time. He did not think, and you're right here, he did not think that you could negotiate with Hitler. He believed that Hitler was a ruthless man, that his ideology, his way to uh, implement his ideology was totally beyond the pale. You could not cooperate with such a man. But Hitler was the exception to the rule, so to speak. In principle, he believed you can cooperate and you should cooperate with your enemies and your foes. And the best example is, of course, Stalin and the Soviet Union. Uh, uh, Churchill always was deeply anti-communist. He wrote many articles, particularly in the 1920s, where he condemned the Bolshevik Revolution of 1917 in the Soviet Union and uh, really used very harsh words, talked about pestilence and similar things, and really condemned the Soviet Union. But he still was able to uh, negotiate and to cooperate with Stalin against the common enemy, Hitler, during the Second World War. There was also, if I may say so, there was another episode before the First World War when the Germans and the British conducted that naval race which eventually led to the outbreak of the First World War, where Churchill also suggested to his own prime minister, he was a 
uh, first Lord of the Admiralty at that time. He suggested to his own Prime Minister, his own Foreign Secretary, to, that he, Churchill, would like to negotiate with the German Admiral Tirpitz, who was in charge of the German Navy built-up program. And that didn't come to anything because the Germans didn't react favorably to Churchill's idea. But it wasn't a lack of will. It was Churchill's intention to negotiate, so already before the First World War. Therefore, after 1945, he did not suddenly invent a new policy. He continued an inclination he had had all the time. And I call that in that book personal diplomacy. He believed also in himself. He believed that he had the charisma. He was the only person on earth who really had the talent, the charisma to be able to do that. What spurred him on to a certain kind of urgency after the Second World War to, to do that was perhaps the invention of nuclear weapons. And also then the opportunity after the death of Stalin that he believed there were changes in the Soviet Union, that the Soviet Union or the leaders of the Soviet Union had become more flexible and more open-minded and perhaps that negotiations with these new leaders were uh, more possible than uh, negotiating with Stalin. Well, let's take the hard case. Let's take Stalin. Mm -hmm. Did Churchill really believe that he could reach a settlement with Stalin still in power? Essentially, he did, because he knew Stalin, and he did not always have bad relations with Stalin. They shared many a joke. They shared a certain inclination to have a drink or two. They had negotiated many times during the Second World War. They also had arrived at the so-called percentage agreement, where they divided up Eastern Europe. That, of course, has been much condemned with hindsight. But that Churchill and Stalin were able to get round a table and agree on something like that, that shows, of course, that Churchill and Stalin had something in common that they did not just uh, view each other with a lot of distrust, which they did, but they also were able to cooperate. And he believed, not that he you know, had high hopes that he could do that, but he thought it was worth his while after 1945 to even try to negotiate a settlement of the Cold War with Stalin. The one who uh, basically ended that hope for Churchill was President Truman, because Churchill knew he couldn't just get together with Stalin and negotiate an end to the Cold War. The United States, the new superpower of the post-war world, had to be round the table. And everyone knew that, also Churchill. And when Truman killed the idea of a big three meeting in 1950-51, uh, as Churchill had in mind, uh, then for the time being that dream of Churchill's died. And he resurrected that dream first when President Eisenhower came to power early in 1953, and then, of course, dramatically with Stalin's death in March 1953, only two months after Eisenhower had been inaugurated. Well, I'm not as familiar with the scholarship, of course, uh, as um, as you are. Um, but you know, it also another striking difference that I notice in your account is that, um, at least according to the received opinion that I am familiar with, Churchill was uh, disappointed with FDR's. Um, uh, attitude of appeasement towards Stalin during World War II, and yet after the war, it seems that the American and the British leader switch roles because it's Churchill who wants to make peace with the Soviet Union and Truman who stiffens his spine. So how do you explain that change? 
or, or am I getting the scholarship wrong? I would say Churchill had an ambiguous attitude towards Roosevelt and towards Stalin. At times, when you think of the years late 44, early 45, uh, uh, Churchill was quite optimistic about Stalin. He wrote that Stalin is a good friend, we can work with him, we can cooperate with him. He was hopeful. He wrote that both to Roosevelt but also to Stalin himself. Then in other letters you find warnings about Stalin, that Stalin was evil, that he was having very uh, sinister plans for Eastern Europe. And so he was not quite clear what to think of Stalin and Stalin's post-war plans. And I think the same applied to Roosevelt. He was, of course, close to Roosevelt. He always saw him as a close friend. And I think Churchill saw Roosevelt as a closer friend than Roosevelt saw Churchill. I think Churchill um, knew that he was more dependent on the United States than the other way around. And so he built up Roosevelt, he built up the United States perhaps as a closer friend than uh, it was in reality uh, the case. And um, he swayed also with Roosevelt. Sometimes he despaired about Roosevelt's perhaps too benign attitude to Stalin towards the end of the war. And sometimes he supported him and believed that was the right position uh, uh, to take. Um, and I think Churchill's opinion towards Stalin and the Soviet Union only became clearer in early 1946, which then became world famous as the so-called Iron Curtain speech. By that stage, he had kind of cl cleared his mind and had recognized that what uh, Stalin was doing in Eastern Europe that was really ominous and that he needed to warn the world about these plans, which at that time, in early 46, were uh, gradually recognized by Western policymakers, but they certainly hadn't been recognized by the wider Western public. And even in policy circles, there was still a lot of in, uh, uncertainty whether it might be possible to cooperate, to work with Stalin, or whether Stalin really had very sinister plans for the future of Europe. So what happens in America, um, the, the shift from Uncle Joe to you know, Truman, all of a sudden taking this very hard stance, I think the crucial year might have been 1948, or maybe it was... Uh, Earlier, I would say. Okay. In, in March 1946, Churchill gave his Iron Curtain speech, and initially it was not well received. And that sp speech, uh, to talk briefly about the speech and Churchill, also had two sides. Churchill warned against uh, the coming down of an Iron Curtain, that uh, Stalin was really communizing uh, all the countries the Red Army had conquered on their way to Berlin. But at the same time, he also said in his speech, we need to find a settlement with Stalin. So already there, there was both a hawkish and a dovish attitude, uh, or an engagement attitude, I would say, in that speech. But initially, the Western public, um, the American public rather, did not uh, think highly of that speech. Uh, uh, American newspapers condemned the speech, thought it was much too warlike, much too harsh, much too cold warlike, and uh, uh, American public opinion largely agreed with that. And even President Truman, who had read the speech on the train from Washington DC to Fulton, Truman and Churchill traveled together on the train, and Truman read the speech and agreed with the speech. And once uh, it became known that Churchill's speech did not go down very well with the American public, and when Truman was asked by American newspaper man, so Mr. President, uh, did you know of the speech? What did you think? He 
said, sorry, no idea. I never saw the speech. I had no idea what Churchill was saying. Being a good politician, he distanced himself totally from the speech. And you can say, throwing Churchill under the bus, if you like. And But months later, um, towards uh, September, October, uh, rather, uh, uh, more or less, September, October 1946, American opinion started changing gradually. And indeed, the, uh, the Uncle Joe um, image disappeared and that kind of warlike, aggressive Stalin image uh, came back. And uh, from then on, American public opinion became increasingly skeptical. One of the reasons why that happened was uh, George Cannon's influence. He had written mm -hmm. that uh, long telegram to the State mm -hmm. Department, which also helped to open the eyes of the State Department about what was happening mm -hmm. in the Soviet Union. And then Cannon, uh, a year later, published a, a summarizing article in Foreign Affairs, summarizing, basically no, making the same yeah, arguments, right. but uh, more palatable to the general public. And that helped to change mm -hmm. uh, American public opinion. Back to this this comparison uh, between Hitler's, or, or I, I beg your pardon, Churchill's attitude towards Hitler and his posture towards Stalin. Uh, it's always struck me that that uh, great statesmen, if they if they don't become writers, they almost should be required to be writers because we can learn so much um, from their view of of events and especially their their long view of history and. You know, it, it, it occurred to me when listening to you that perhaps we can learn something more about Hitler and Stalin through the, by looking carefully through the eyes of Churchill and his, his uh, different policy towards both of these leaders might clue us, give us some clue into how they really were different. I mean, maybe Stalin's objective, he didn't pick up the mission of the Communist International to make communism worldwide, but maybe his ambitions really were li more limited and, and Churchill somehow knew that or sensed that. And the evidence that you gave last night, which really surprised me, I had never heard this before, when you said that uh, we now know from recently um, released uh, or declassified documents that the Soviets were willing to unify Germany, and which is what Churchill wanted also, yeah. and sort of use that, the earlier unification of Germany as a basis for a broader, permanent, yeah. lasting peace. That takes us to the year 52 and 53. To um, maybe summarize that briefly, in uh, early 1952, the so-called Stalin note was published. That was a note by Stalin, who was still alive then, uh, sent to uh, the three occupation powers of Germany, the United States, Britain, and France, not to the Germans themselves. And uh, he suggested that the Germ uh, that Germany should be reunited on a neutral and demilitarized basis. And the Western powers were horrified by that idea because their idea for the future of Germany was to have at least the Western part of Germany, after all, the industrialized part, the more populous part, the larger part, also territorial, to have that firmly integrated into the West and therefore split German, the German nation. Um, that, of course, meant they were quite prepared to sacrifice Eastern Germany. They believed that was tough for the Eastern Germans, but better that way than having another world war on your hands. 
And that was a Western plan for Germany. And the West German Chancellor Adenauer agreed with that for that very reason that he also distrusted his own people and believed mm. if you have a unified Germany, uh, then maybe in the future there will be another militarized Germany. So he agreed with Western plans. And uh, Stalin then in 52 suggested to undo that and to have the Germans united again, though on a demilitarized basis, but as a neutral country, so a country which would be neither part of the Western Bloc nor of the Eastern Bloc, the Western powers and Adenauer were horrified because they believed that was exactly which was dangerous, which might produce another Hitler in the mm -hmm. future. So better a firmly integrated Western uh, Germany into the West. And uh, so they dismissed Stalin's note. But of course, they couldn't just say no, because Western public opinion thought that was a great idea. So they put pressure on mm -hmm. the Western powers to accept Churchill's, uh, uh, Stalin's idea. And they, the, the, the mantra was, why don't you check it out at a conference? You don't have to say yes immediately. Just talk to Stalin. See what he uh, suggests in detail. And the Western powers even thought that was dangerous. Once you meet someone around the conference table, all sorts of ideas might be suggested, which then would be difficult to reject. So they said, basically, we can't negotiate with Stalin. So they wrote back to Stalin and said, interesting idea. Can we have some more details? And Stalin wrote back again and sent some more details. And they then waited two or three months, writing back saying, thank you very much for your interesting uh, details. Can we have some more details? Mm -hmm. And so it went on and on until the so-called Battle of the Notes petered out in September 1952. And then in March 53, sorry, in May 53, after Stalin's death, Churchill went public with a very similar idea to what Stalin had suggested mm -hmm. in 52, also suggesting uh, a united Germany on a neutral basis. Actually, in public, he only hinted at that. These were his more secret plans in private, which he, mm -hmm. however, uh, uh, informed the Western powers about after a while. And again, of course, the Western powers were horrified mm -hmm. and rejected that idea. That was the reason why they suddenly thought Churchill had become maybe weak in his mind, that he was getting old, that he was mellowing, that he wasn't up to the job anymore. But secretly... And you think that's unfair? That I think it is unfair. Yeah. yeah, there was an element to that, that of course Churchill, being a wise old man, also knew of the dangers of war and nuclear war and mm -hmm. he believed that the civilization of Europe would be destroyed and that he was perhaps more fearful than some younger politicians in the United States. Mm -hmm. But on the whole, I think his fear was quite justified. Yeah. And at the same time, you also had developments in Russia, which of course the West didn't know about, where uh, Interior Minister Beria came up with similar plans to allow the reunification of Germany so that the Soviets would voluntarily uh, withdraw from Eastern Europe. Uh, not Eastern Europe, Eastern Germany, Eastern Germany. only. Mm -hmm. And the reason why was that uh, Beria had recognized that there was a lot of protest uh, potential in Eastern Germany that would be difficult for the uh, Soviet Union to control. He also believed it is very expensive for the mm -hmm. Soviet Union to help rebuild Eastern Europe. So he believed maybe it's the best if we give up Eastern Europe and get some, uh, 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 some better deal in the Cold War mm -hmm. with the West. Well, having grown up in the United States and uh, in a family that was uh, exclusively Cold War hawks, I can just imagine 
Exactly. That, uh, exactly. You yeah. know, uh, the way that uh, Americans might have received such a plan would have been to distrust it, to see a Trojan horse. Absolutely. And certainly, I would never underestimate Churchill, even on his deathbed, uh, and his intelligence. I would imagine that certainly he must have been aware that uh, of this a that the Soviets might try to use reunification to make all of Germany communist or at least fall under the Soviet influence. And so I wonder what his strategy was to not only prevent that, but then to win the larger game. If he was willing to come to the table with the Soviet Union and to create a lasting peace, I imagine that he also probably would have had some strategy, unspoken strategy, to try to liberalize the communist world. He certainly never, he doesn't strike me as the kind of man who would have um, accepted the peace of tyranny, but might have had some other plan uh, that he's holding in his back, in his, in his pocket, to try to uh, engage uh, you know, to bring about the collapse of the Soviet Union and the Soviet bloc the way that Ronald Reagan did? No, I don't think so, because Churchill knew that he could not risk a war with the Soviet Union. A, Britain wouldn't have been up to it. Britain was already pretty poor, pretty uh, demilitarized. They had uh, lots of problems uh, all over the empire, in Burma, in India, that occupation forces in Germany. There were many uprisings in all over the uh, then still existing empire which British forces had to deal with. They were really totally stretched. Also yeah. economically, they were very weak. So there was no rollback idea on Churchill's uh, part to, to overcome communism. Churchill, I think, had more the attitude of Nixon and Kissinger of the 1970s that mm. you have to accept uh, that there is communism in the East. Of course, you don't like mm. it. You would like to do something about it, but realistically, short of another major war, you really can't afford to do mm. anything about it. The, the West had the nuclear uh, bomb uh, until 1949 alone, but even after 1949, the nuclear arsenal in the Soviet Union was limited. Theoretically, you could win a major war with the help of mm -hmm. the Western nuclear weapon. But who wanted to win such a war? That would have yeah. destroyed everything you were fighting for. Therefore, you had to accept, uh, for the time being at least, the existence of the Soviet Union. But Churchill believed in his own charisma probably too much. He was, of course, full of himself. He was always uh, believed in his own exceptionalism, if you like. And he believed if he got round the table with the American president and the Soviet leaders, he could negotiate successfully and overcome the Cold War mm -hmm. in a, a cooperative way so that uh, any, any uh, uh, let's say, forceful uh, pull of the whole of Germany into the Soviet orbit wouldn't happen. He also believed uh, that he could influence Eisenhower, who had become president in uh, January 1953. But Churchill knew him from the Second World War as a general. And of course, an American general, uh, a Western allied general, was still 
much less high up than the British Prime Minister. And of course, he always saw Eisenhower as a bit of an underling who he could not tell what to do, but he could influence him. He used to. <laughs> exactly. But, you know, afterwards he knew he couldn't tell him what to do, but he believed his, his powers of manipulation mm -hmm. and of influence and of persuasion would sway Eisenhower. Mm -hmm. And that, of course, was not mm -hmm. the case at all. Eisenhower had very uh, opposite ideas. He knew as American president he was a top dog now, not the uh, uh, aging British prime minister. Yeah. Well, Professor, I mean, I think you've brought out a real difference between Churchill's approach to communism and the, the American, at least the approach of, uh, of uh, you know, Scoop Jackson Democrats mm. as well as uh, conservative Republicans because, you know, we always thought that we were in a fight to the finish. Yes. And that it was going to be us or them and we were not going to let liberty fall. And so we're going to find a way to defeat communism. And it was out of that tradition, I think, that Ronald Reagan comes up with a bloodless way to bring down the Soviet Union. I believe that um, his, um, his diplomacy with Saudi Arabia and, and, uh, and uh, getting them to increase oil production, it took away, it lowered the price of oil, it took away current, hard currency from the Soviet Union, from their oil fields, and so they couldn't sustain their war machine and so on. So he came up with a recipe to, or you know, a strategy to bring down the Soviet Union. And you can't discern anywhere in Churchill's speeches or writings a, no, a sort of strategy. So it wasn't just containment for containment's sake, but containment plus a way to compete and bring their system Ch to Churchill was a realist. He was also thinking in terms of his own country. He realized if the Cold War was continuing, Britain would ever more be a junior partner to the other great powers. And that is something he did not want to tolerate. And he knew by overcoming the Cold War, which would have meant also a decline of the arms race and of antagonism and of the military forces needed to, to fight the Cold War essentially, that only then Great Britain could really recuperate economically and remain one of the great powers of the world. So he had that very selfish idea about Britain's role in the back of his mind. He also had a very personally selfish uh, idea in the back of his mind probably very much at the forefront of his mind, because there was enormous pressure on him to retire. And he was not in the best of health. He had uh, several heart attacks. He had a really s serious stroke in uh, June 1953. And his wife, but also his fellow cabinet colleagues, put constant pressure on him, saying, Winston, it's time to go. Have mm -hmm. a nice, good age. You did a great job. But now let's, let's retire mm -hmm. from politics. That was not what Churchill uh, wanted. As we said at the beginning of our conversation, he wanted to have the legacy of peacemaker, of the one who did not just want the Second World War, win the Second World War, but who also would win uh, and overcome rather mm -hmm. the uh, Cold War. Therefore, he wanted to stay in power until that was achieved. Mm -hmm. And he liked power. He liked the glory, <laughs> the admiration, the perks which come with it. And uh, he liked to be in the center of attention, I would say, always. And uh, so it was very difficult for him to give up power. And he wanted to achieve that final victory, so mm -hmm. to speak, 
and he did everything possible to, to, to realize that. And he tried to push negotiations with the Soviet Union as much as he could. Talking about Ra Ronald Reagan, if I may, there is a difference between the European point of view and the American point of view re uh, regarding Ronald Reagan. In many parts of the United States, Ronald Reagan is viewed as the one who ended the Cold War, who have overcome decisively the Cold War. This is not the view in Europe at all. Uh, while uh, Ronald Reagan made an important contribution by uh, rearming re and pushing the Soviet Union to the wall economically, also, as you rightly said, getting uh, Saudi Arabia to manipulate the oil price was very important. Mm -hmm. However, Reagan was, of course, out of office when the, co uh, when the Berlin Wall collapsed. He left office in January 1989. And all the events of 1989 had nothing whatsoever to do with Reagan directly, but of course with uh, Bush the, uh, the elder. And what Europeans mostly credit the end of the Cold War with is Gorbachev and in my view, even more important, the peoples of Eastern Europe who took to the street and had the courage to demonstrate. And I often ask my students, would you have gone, would I have gone and participated in these riots and protests and uprisings? I hope the answer would be yes, but would we really have had the courage? Because we knew, or people at the time knew, Soviet tanks were just around the corner. They could have come and crushed any protest within minutes as had happened in the past, uh, in the past 1968 in uh, Czechoslovakia, for example, 56 mm -hmm. in Hungary, 53 in uh, East Germany. Mm -hmm. So I think these people who, despite that real, real danger, which then didn't materialize, but they didn't know, of course, they took to the streets, not just once or twice, but for weeks and weeks and months and months. And I think they are the real heroes of uh, bringing about the end of the Cold War. And uh, Gorbachev, of course, who did not send in the tanks, also deserves the credit. Reagan also deserves some credit. But I think when we compare it with the peoples of Eastern Europe and their courage, then even Gorbachev and even Reagan really uh, have less significance, I think. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, just uh, you, you mentioned that uh, Britain was really stretched after the war ended. And I'm just mentally noting to myself they had problems in India. Absolutely. And they were engaged in Greece. Yeah. So the British military forces were in Greece. They were in Malaysia. I, I believe that's Absolutely. all over a five-year period of time, yeah, Burma. Yeah. And, and they had just finished fighting this Absolutely. major war. And, and, uh, and they had the occu occupation war. forces in Germany, which also stretched yeah, still them. there yeah, also. Yeah. And they were involved in the Japanese uh, conflict yeah. as well. So yeah. um, in a way, um, you know, containment might seem very attractive if you can pull it off at that time mm -hmm. and you are so stretched. So I, I, I understand your point, but I would also uh, maybe to push you a little bit, uh, especially I think about Greece. And if I'm recalling correctly, I think Churchill was very firm about our stand in Greece to prevent Greece from falling into Absolutely. The, no. uh, the Eastern or the Soviet orbit. Absolutely. And at the time, I think it was misjudged as later was in Vietnam, that it really was a nationalist uprising rather than uh, so much uh, the issue was uh, communism. And uh, Churchill believed he was supporting a free Greece against uh, communism, clearly. 
And, uh, but essentially, the British could not afford to stay in Greece. And the Labour government, which succeeded uh, Churchill then in 1945, saw this. And after, not immediately, but they tried to stay as well. But by 1946-47, they realized they could not stay. Mm. And that then provoked the Truman Doctrine, when the British really told the Truman administration, we will have to pull out, there's no way mm. we can afford it. Some authors have actually uh, said that was a British ploy. They uh, 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 intentionally said that, not because they really had to pull out, but to get the Americans in. You know, they mm. tried to manipulate the Truman administration into fighting communism. Mm. This is over the top. The, the British really thought they were economically uh, almost bankrupt. They had to mm. go. So it was not a deliberate British ploy to get the United States into Europe against uh, communism. But the effect was the same. And they certainly were pleased that in the long run, Truman didn't actually come as quickly as the British had hoped initially. Mm. But in the long run, uh, uh, the United States took over the fight in Greece. And of course, uh, communism did not win in Greece. Mm -hmm. Uh, I, you used the word engagement many times in your your, your talk yesterday, uh, last night, and uh, especially in relation to general principles about yeah. uh, you know how to conduct foreign affairs and and especially I, I think you connected that theme in in your other talk on Saturday night um, with respect to the current American administration and foreign policy and and what we really need to do yep. is to engage more. Could you elaborate on that? Because it seems like you're drawing that lesson directly from Churchill's conduct yep. Yep. Uh, during the Cold yeah. War. And actually, uh, not just me. In 1984, George Shultz, uh, uh, Ronald Reagan's uh, Secretary of State, just before the first negotiations with Gorbachev uh, uh, were about to take place, he quoted Churchill's May 1953 speech. And he said, mm. already Churchill said, that uh, a partial settlement is totally better than ach achieving or trying to achieve a comprehensive settlement which pre may perhaps not be achievable. And he quoted that famous uh, uh, saying by Churchill, Giorgio is better than war yeah. war. Uh, <laughs> and so, uh, you know, that attitude that you have to engage with the other side, even if you dislike the ideology, if you dislike the human rights system, if you dislike, uh, mm -hmm. dislike the economic system, that I think has been a long tradition also in American foreign policy. Churchill, I think, is a really strong proponent of that during the Second mm -hmm. World War, as I said, after the Second World War. But American governments have done that as well, including the Reagan administration. And I think on in the last resort, that is, of course, a way forward if you want to avoid a major military conflict mm. with a country you do not see as a friendly country, but as a rival and a strategic rival and competitor. And I think that is also the lesson we should learn for today. You know, today the, the biggest competitors to the, uh, with the United States are clearly China and Russia. Mm -hmm. And whatever you may think about these two very authoritarian uh, systems, which most Americans, I would say, most of the Western world have not much sympathy for, not for the peoples, I mean, but for the regimes, how the government is run in these countries. And uh, it is still no point to pretend that we do not have to engage, that we do not have to talk to them. So I also think it makes sense, despite Putin's annexation of Crimea, 
despite his invasion of Eastern uh, Europe, despite other very nasty things he has done, we still need to engage with him. Not in order to forgive him and to be nice and kind to him and to, you know, to appease him. That is not what I mean. But we still need to talk to him. And the same, I think, applies uh, to China. And that is, of course, done at the moment. There are trade talks mm -hmm. with China still taking place. I have no idea how far they have progressed, whether they are constructive or whether they are fake talks. I hope mm -hmm. not. I hope these are serious talks. But we need to engage. And I think that is clearly a lesson uh, Churchill also taught us that uh, you, know, you cannot always uh, hope to overcome your enemy. You have to engage, cooperate, and find some sort of compromise solution which at least prevents a major military conflict. So do you think Churchill would be uh, cheering on Donald J. Trump in his uh, efforts to engage Russia and to engage China and, the hardest case of all, to engage North Korea and Kim uh, Jong-un? I think Churchill would, in principle, be in favor of talking. Uh, he would not say you should run away and not talk to these leaders. Whether he would talk to them the way Trump is talking <laughs> and has talked to Putin and Kim and others, this I very much yeah. doubt. I think uh, there are more skillful ways of conducting negotiations than what we see at the moment. But the principle of engagement, I think Churchill would agree with. Well, if your queen's way of talking is the only thing that you've got, maybe you've got to use you Absolutely. have to use it. <laughs> um, just I had a couple of questions. I've always been intrigued by Churchill's vision of the United States of Europe. Do you think that Europe, um, the European Union after the Maastricht Treaty and the Lisbon Treaty uh, was aligned with Churchill's vision or did Churchill's, did he not work out his vision uh, with enough detail for us to really even be able to make an assessment? I don't think he did. And I also do not think that Churchill was thinking in terms of a European Union as we saw it after the Maastricht Treaty. Uh, as I said yesterday, Churchill was in favor of the integration of Europe. He was particularly in favor of friendship between France and Germany, the old arch enemies, to prevent another major war. But he did not really see Britain as part of that Europe. He had, was, of course, an arch-imperialist. He had also mm. just won the uh, Second World War. He saw Britain on the same level as the United States mm. and the uh, Soviet Union. He did not see Britain on the level of these poor, conquered, mm. uh, destroyed European countries. So for him, Britain was not part uh, of mm. the same league. You know, Britain was in a much higher league. But you know, that, of course, changed dramatically in the 1950s and 1960s. And it is very difficult to um, f say what Churchill would have made of mm. that. But Churchill, I think, always recognized the advantage of his own country and the benefits of his own country. Uh, whether he would have joined the uh, European economic community, I don't know. But mm. I think once Britain had joined, I think he would have seen much more clearly than the present government seems to be able of seeing it, the enormous disadvantages of withdrawing again. Mm -hmm. So I think Churchill was also an arch realist who realized what was good and what was bad for Britain. And I think uh, Brexit under a Churchill government in 2016, I find difficult to see. Mm -hmm. So do you think that 
now, uh, Britain has more in common with Europe than it does with the United States. It sounds like, you know, Churchill's view of Britain's place or, or proper orbit would have been with the United States, much in the same way as maybe, uh, you know, George Orwell, when in 1984, he imagines Oceania and Britain as part of the United States, that one of the three great yeah, no, uh, power. Did, uh, and it sounds like Churchill was seeing him a union between the English-speaking peoples. He he took that very seriously, um, and and it sounds like what you're saying is that Britain has now kind of developed more in common with the European Union than with the United States and Canada. Yeah, I mean Churchill's idea about the uh, union of the English-speaking states was. I'm not sure how seriously that really was meant. Of course, uh, Churchill was also very nostalgic, romantic, sentimental kind of guy. His mother was American. So there was one side of his who clearly believed in that, but more in a romantic, idealistic way. But uh, he never talked of Britain as a 51st or 52nd or whatever state of, of the United <laughs> States. Uh, but he didn't want Britain to be uh, uh, submerged in Euro into Europe either. He saw Britain, and at that time that was of course more typical than today, as a very sovereign, very independent, very strong country in its own right. Mm. And I think from his uh, explaining by his upbringing, by his history, and also by, let's say, 45, 46, after the, the, the victory over Hitler, that is, uh, in a way, logical. But since then, many things have happened. And the British economy is very dependent on the European Union economies. Half of all British exports go to Europe. They do not go to the United States or to China. Mm. And uh, Europe is, of course, in the immediate backyard of Britain. The United States is over 3,000 miles away. So it makes totally total economic sense for Britain to be close to Europe and to in a very intensive relationship mm -hmm. with Europe. That doesn't mean that sentimentally or culturally there are, can also be close uh, links with the United States. So I actually do not see that contradiction between that Britain has to decide either between uh, America and, uh, and the, uh, the European continent. Britain can actually have both. Uh, there is a special relationship, as the British like to emphasize, and no one, as long as Britain was a member of the European Union, doubted that or said you cannot have the special relationship. Have it politically, intelligence-wise, sentimentally, but in economic terms, you know where your bread is buttered, and that butter is, uh, uh, and the bread, and the butter is uh, on the European continent. And um, also to leave a big European, uh, a, a big economic block, the largest economic block in, in the world, uh, to be on your own, because Britain is not joining the United States as an alternative. It wants to be by itself, essentially, and to trade on WTO terms and to leave a huge economic block uh, and very prosperous, mm -hmm. very rich, to be on your own, in a way, doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. Sentimentally, culturally, I understand, also imperialistically, when you think of the past, nostalgically, I can fully understand where that comes from. But in terms of economic realism, I think it's totally misguided. Mm -hmm. Professor, this has been a very illuminating conversation. Thank you so much for joining Civil Discourses uh, and, uh, and for coming to Alaska. It was a great pleasure. Thank you for interviewing me.
Ladies and gentlemen, please download Civil Discourses from Apple Podcasts. We will see you next time.